Welcome back to The Shorter, a podcast on The Shorter Catechism where two pastors take 20-something minutes to confess their way to the 107 questions of the Westminster Shorter Catechism. I'm your host, Tommy Park, and I'm joined by my co-host, Stephen Spinnenweber. Hey, everybody. And uh, we've got an exciting topic today. We've got Dr. J.D. Fesco uh, back from RTS Jackson. He's on the podcast. He's, he's been here before. Uh, I was joking before we came on the air. He is the OG OPC. We have now interviewed Chavin Dixhorn, Carl Truman, and J.B. Fesco. So we're excited to have him back on. He previously spoke on the podcast on Chapter 20. We would commend that episode to you. Go back and give that a listen. But today we've got him on to talk about a new book that really touches on what we're passionate about here at The Shorter. It's on the need for creeds today, confessional faith in a faithless age. That's the name of his book. And uh, that's what we're going to be talking about on the podcast today. So, Dr. Fesco, thanks for coming back. Hey, thanks for having me. It's good to be with you guys back on the podcast. 2020, crazy year. Uh, A lot of things change. Uh, Still in the OPC, still at RTS Jackson. Uh, You've made a book. Is there anything else new uh, (laughs) since last we chatted? Uh, just finished up the semester yesterday. I still have to do a little bit of grading, so that's new. Uh, but uh, you know, still uh, working away at stuff. I've got uh, I've got some uh, some copy editing to do. My, my editor sent me back some material for my uh, Covenant of Works book, uh, so that one, God willing, should be out maybe by the end of the year. We'll have to wait and see how how smoothly the rest of that process goes. Uh, sometimes, you know, who knows? There could be riots, uh, viruses, uh, you know, you never know what's going to slow things down or speed things up. But, but yeah, no, things have been going well at RTS. And, uh, and so both for, you know, me and, and the, the institution, my family. So things are going well. I hope things are going well for you guys in spite of all of the, uh, the craziness that is 2020 and 2021. Yes. Tommy's got me. So, I mean, that, However, that's either good or bad, just depending on where you're sitting. Uh, I like having Tommy around, so we're hanging in there. Um, yeah, so you've got another book coming out. Um, we we have I have on your sh- on my shelf the uh, the Trinity and the Covenant of Redemption. So you are the Covenant guy. Uh, <laughs> so that's how we'll uh, refer to you. And so today we're going to talk about your new book, The Need for Creeds and Confessions. And so. Tommy's going to start off by asking you some questions and then and I'll round it out. Okay, sounds good. Yeah. Uh, again, thanks for joining us. So first, uh, you know, you wrote this nice little book, uh, The Need for Creeds. I don't know. I kind of want to say the need for what? Need for speed, but <laughs> need for creeds. So why did, yeah. you write, write, why did you write this little book? Um, well, a little backstory on that is that the original title was The Need for Creeds. And so I mentioned to my my uh, my acquisitions editor, I said that makes me think of Top Gun. I feel the need, the need for speed. And he uh-huh. said, you know, we mentioned that at our meeting, at our editors' meeting. So what if we put the word today in there? And I said, okay, sure. You know that that sounds good. I don't know how how useful that word today is. And so, uh, but yeah, so it makes me think of Top Gun too, being a being an '80s kid. We'll, we'll still refer to it as that, the need for creed. There you um, go. You know, all we need to do is take off our shirts and play some beach volleyball and read the book and we'll probably be set. It's just that uh, people might be scared and small children will run away. 
But uh, yeah, no, I wrote this book because I was asked to give a series of lectures on uh, uh, Crete. Uh, but at the same time, there was another conference where I was asked to address uh, the doctrine of the decrees. And I gave one lecture to that topic. But then the second lecture where I was you know, addressing that, I wanted to talk about the relationship between, um, say, writing, writing creedal statements and documents about creeds to the importance of piety. And so I, I ended up taking that lecture <clears throat> and putting it together with the other four. And that's what constitutes this book. And so that I had this kind of in the back of my mind, this master plan as I had uh, was uh, putting the lectures together that I wanted to put this little book together, provide uh, not only the lectures, but uh, hopefully an accessible uh, statement on why uh, creeds are important. And uh, not only are they important, but uh, they're they're beneficial and even essential uh, to the to the life of the church. Yeah, I mean, as you pointed out in the book, uh, there's a sense of a lot of folks are sus- suspicious of creeds and confessions from the outset. We've often heard the phrase, you know, uh, "I have no creed but the Bible," uh, and you do this in the book. But how would you kind of address that misnomer? Or yeah, that- all all of us at one, you know, all of us have a creed. Every single one of us. And uh, as, as you know, I point out in the book that no creed but the Bible is in itself a creed, even if it's a very short one. Um, but nevertheless, it is. So it's not a question of whether or not we're going to have creeds, but rather it's a question of what creed will we have uh, and how good will it be? Uh, or conversely, how bad will it be? Uh, and so that's, uh, that's, that's one of the things that is as suspicious as people are of creeds and confessions. You know, uh, we just have to come to grips with the fact that we all use them. In chapter one, you make the case from Scripture that, con- uh, uh, that confessions are, in fact, biblical. Uh, can you walk us through one or a handful of these biblical arguments? Yes. You know, in the dedication of the firstborn, which occurs uh, at the celebration of the Passover, which you read about in Exodus chapter 13, for example, uh, you have the parents, God telling the parents that as they perform this rite, that they should explain to their children what all of the events of the Exodus means, its significance, what happened to the people of Israel, what God did especially. And so what that tells us is that we have a biblically mandated obligation to teach our children, pardon me, <coughs> or what we would say, you know, in our, you know, Presbyterian circles, to catechize our children in the faith, in the mighty deeds of God. Another passage of scripture that we find, for example, is in Exodus chapter 6, which in many respects we could say that it's the covenantal charter, a charter or the Magna Carta uh, of the people of Israel when God gives them what Jesus calls the first and greatest commandment in Deuteronomy 6, 4, that they're to love the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. Uh, and that that in and of itself is also a creed. And so God gives to them a creed. And so I can hear what people might think, okay, sure, we should teach our children about the scriptures. Sure, we should, we should profess uh, a biblical faith that's informed by scriptural statements. But doesn't that fall short of, you know, creating our own creeds or our own confessions? And I would say, um, no, it doesn't. Uh, from the vantage point that if we look at the pastoral epistles where Paul invokes a number of his so-called faithful sayings, you know, 
that uh, that this is where we find, I think, the church's own creedal statements that begin outside of the scriptures and that Paul himself incorporates into the scriptures. In other words, uh, these faithful sayings are not necessarily any explicit statement from scripture, but rather a summary of the statements of scripture or of the teachings of Jesus. And so when Paul incorporates these, he's taking uh, extra biblical statements that are nevertheless consistent with the teaching of scripture, so much so that he, under the inspiration of the spirit, can incorporate them into his letters. And so what this means is that it unfolds a pattern that I think we see in the larger uh, life of the church, but also especially in the scriptures, in that when, uh, when God tells us, you know, to, you know, through Paul that we are, we're to preach the word of God in season and out of season, he doesn't restrict us to the exact words of scripture. We can use our own words so long as they're faithful to the biblical text, of course, uh, to, to preach the word of God. Uh, you know, you see this, say, in Nehemiah, where the, the, the scribes would uh, read the word of God, and then, as it says in Nehemiah, and give the sense, explain it, which means you have to use extra biblical language to explain what's going on. We see this in our prayers. When the disciples asked Jesus, how should we pray? And Jesus, in Matthew chapter 6, says, well, this is how you pray. Jesus does not restrict us to those words of the Lord's Prayer, uh, but rather, uh, so long as we pray in a manner that's consistent with the teaching of Scripture, we can use our own words to express not only what our desires are, but in prayer chiefly to tell God who He is by using His own words as well as our own words. Uh, you see uh, another example of this, say, in um, in our in a scriptural uh, scriptural use of or the use of the scriptures for singing in church. I know that for some this is a debated point because they say no, we can only sing the psalms exclusively. But I would say that one of the things that we we see in the New Testament, especially say in the Book of Revelation, is that we're to sing a new song unto the Lord, and so not just singing about Christ and His works from the shadows of the Old Testament, say in the Psalms as good as those psalms are for singing in congregational worship, but to write new songs, spiritual songs, hymns, as Paul says in Colossians 3, that, uh, that's, that sing of the, the, the mighty works of Christ. They are our words, but they are consistent with and remain true to the teaching of Scripture. So if we have all those examples, then what that means is that as we seek to pass on the faith to, to future generations, uh, we can take our own words to summarize uh, the teachings of the scriptures, uh, so long as, of course, those words are subordinate to the authority of scripture, uh, as well as consistent with the teaching of scripture. Uh, and so that that's essentially what I would say is why, um, you know, creeds are necessary uh, to the church's existence in the sense that each generation has to own the truth for themselves before they can pass it on to future generations. Uh, because as my grandfather used to say, you can't give away what you don't own. And I don't think the saying was necessarily peculiar to him. I've heard other people say it, but it's nevertheless, uh, nevertheless true. In chapter two, you walk through the Reformed Confessions, particularly uh, from the 1500s through the 1700s, 
what made you focus on these confessions uh, particularly, and how do they relate to the very early creeds or confessions like the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, mm-hmm. uh, and so on? Yeah, um, well, the easy answer to that question is, is that's the topic that the conference organizers assigned me, or at least one of the topics of my lecture. So sometimes sometimes chapters and books have rather mundane and boring origins. On the other hand, what I wanted to focus upon is a common criticism against Reformed confessions, which is, say, if you look at maybe Calvin's catechism in Geneva from 1542, I think, uh, or by comparison, the larger catechism by the Westminster Assembly. The two are very different documents from the standpoint that the larger catechism is quite long, quite extensive, and very detailed. And so many people, even within the Reformed community, have been critical of the longer confessions of faith, like the Westminster Confession of Faith, because they say it's too detailed. Uh, Why can't we go back to a simpler time? And the uh, easy answer to that, I suppose, is is that we can't unring the bell, we can't wind the clock back, because we're dealing with, say, at least from the standpoint of Westminster, of nearly 1,700 years of the church's reflection upon the scriptures, as well as nearly 1,700 years of false teaching. And so with each round of false teaching, it's always required that the church would get more specific uh, and more uh, accurate in what they say the Bible means so that we can say it means this and not that, uh, i.e. it's it's not false teaching. This We're going to reject this false teaching, and here we have the, the, the truth. But another factor that a lot of people don't realize in the formation of confessions is that when they say compare the first generation confessions with, say, the confessions of the 17th century, or even within the the second generation of the Reformation, what they don't realize is that the first generation confessions were largely written by just a small handful of individuals, or even sometimes a single individual such as Ulrich Zwingli's and his Ratio Fide, uh, you know, uh, it's just a series of articles that he presented uh, to, uh, you know, Charles V at the Augsburg or the Diet of Augsburg. And so, you, you, you know, it's easy on the one hand, if, if I told you, you write a confession of faith, you're going to have, for the most part, no problem just writing up your confession of faith. But if I tell you and Stephen to write a confession of faith, now you're going to get have to get more specific. You might not agree on everything. You might want to tweak a word here or there or use a word so that you could both agree uh, as to, you know, a, a particular statement or phrase. Well, imagine multiplying that by, say, more than 100 people, where all of a sudden, more than 100 people over the course of six or seven years are writing these confessional documents. They require a greater degree of detail uh, to be able to rope in as many people as possible in the process. And so I want to say that the length and sometimes perhaps the detailed nature of later confessions is simply just a, uh, a an ordinary uh, byproduct of involving more people rather than trying to exclude people, uh, as well as having to defend the truth against new and uh, and different challenges to the Christian faith. 
And so with that in mind, I try to encourage people to say that, hey, these later confessions are certainly written in the spirit of the earlier confessions. And I think we can say that they, they, they lie in continuity with them and are not in any way a deviation or a corruption of the first generation uh, re uh, reformed confessions. The, the second part of your question I can answer very briefly is that the, the mark of a good confession of faith will can be determined by the degree to which it connects with the ancient church. And in this vein, you can see these connections, say, in the, the Westminster uh, Standards, the, the Catechisms, the Confession, where they echo and even repeat phrases from the Nicene Creed or the Chalcedonian definition, or sometimes in some cases with some documents repeating phrases or explaining the Apostles' Creed. Because in the end, I think that what confessionalism is all about, it's about joining hands with the church throughout the ages to profess the faith that was once delivered to the saints. It's not about just me and my Bible, but rather we have been united to Christ who is our head and we together as the body of Christ, the church, constitute uh, his body, but it's not a body that's merely constituted of the people that are uh, breathing and walking about, but rather it's, it's constituted by the body of people that have been united to Christ throughout the entire history of the church. And so that's why it's important that we confess our faith together with them as well as in our own generation. It's funny you mentioned the confessions are our way of joining hands, you know, joining arms with the church throughout the ages. One of the things I love so much about the Red Trinity hymnal that we sing from at Westminster is, you know, all Creatures of Our God and King, that was written by St. Francis of Assisi in 1225. Mm -hmm. And so that experience of singing a song, the same song that was you know, sung almost a thousand years ago, I think it's kind of that same experience that we're meant to have when we recite these creeds and confessions, because we are one holy Catholic and apostolic church throughout the ages. So, yeah. No, absolutely. I think that's a great illustration of that point. Yeah. So chapter three. You get a little bit provocative. Mm -hmm. Causes of deconfessionalization. I'm waiting for that to make its way into Webster's because I think it's a great <laughs> word, deconfessionalization. Yeah. Uh, this apathy or even hostility to creeds, confessions. Mm -hmm. In your mind, what are some of the leading causes of this suspicion and deconfessionalization? Yeah. I think that one of the things I try to do in this chapter is I try to show that we can say, yes, perhaps the easy cop-out is to say, well, you know, the world has abandoned the faith, the world has abandoned Christ and the church, and so naturally people are going to turn away from confessions and creeds. And to a certain extent, I want to acknowledge the fact that that's true. But on the other hand, I've always wanted to do history as honestly as possible with a complete um, uh, awareness of both the strengths of the church as well as its weaknesses. And so in this sense, I, I go back to, you know, a series of different events that unfold within the church where we can say that uh, deconfessionalization or a, a failure to use, appreciate, and value confessions of faith uh, owes its origins uh, within the church itself. 
so that, for example, in the earliest days of the Reformation, both Protestants and Catholics used, uh, uh, you know, Ciceronian skepticism uh, or Stoic skepticism uh, as, a, as an engine of war in theological debates where, you know, the, uh, the, the Protestants would say, well, we have doubts about your church authority. How can you possibly say certain things? Well, the, 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 the Catholics would respond and say, well, we have doubts about your exegesis. And in, they would just, you know, use doubt as an engine of war. It's kind of like uh, I tell my students, you can kind of drive somebody batty, uh, which I don't necessarily advise, but, but you can drive somebody batty by just asking a series of questions. And, uh, and, you know, so, you know, well, who are you? Oh, well, my name is John. <coughs> um, well, you know, how do I know who you are, who you, you really are, who you claim you are? Well, you know, here, here's your driver's license. Here's my driver's license. Well, how do I know that you didn't fake this ID and that it's authentic? You know, well, it, it's got some of the markings of authenticity on it. It's got the state seal and it's got this little, you know, watermark on it. Well, how do I don't know, how do I know it's not a, a forgery? And so you just continue to ask doubting questions like that, uh, you know, and you can eventually drive somebody mad to say, okay, you know what, never mind. Um, and that in and of itself, that use of skepticism basically kind of unleashed a, a, a mad genie into you know into Western Europe, where it, it eventually came around to bite Christians with uh, skepticism being used as an engine of war by enlightenment philosophers against the church. And so that's one of the origins uh, of uh, deconfessionalization. Another significant, I think, uh, you know, event or several events is what I would say are wars that were fought along confessional lines, such as the Thirty Years' War, which was fought between uh, Protestants and Catholic armies, so-called, and they uh, it was the most destructive conflict in the entire world's history up until World War One. Uh, some eight million people were killed in that war. Uh, nearly half the population of Germany was eradicated. Uh, some, I think that half the villages, I think in uh, some of the, uh, I forget one of the regions in Europe were just absolutely, you know, just destroyed and eliminated uh, because of this war. And it was all fought in the name of their respective, you know, professions of faith, i.e. Catholicism versus Protestantism. Uh, along similar lines, our own venerable Westminster standards were written during a time of civil war, a civil war that claimed uh, more than a quarter of a million lives in England and in Scotland. And uh, were the United States at this point to lose uh, that large of a chunk of our population, uh, it would be you know, a tantamount to losing some 30 million people in our own country. Uh, and again, this was fought along the lines of uh, you know, uh, Presbyterian parliamentary parliamentary parliamentarians uh, versus uh, royalists, those who supported the king. And John Locke observed, you know, what was the real difference theologically between them? I, I, it's tough for me to say that didn't they agree on all of these chief points? And so a lot of people such as John Locke or Thomas Hobbes Thomas Hobbes fa fa famously said in the, of the 17th century that life was brut brutal and short, um, and that he attributed a lot of the bloodshed to 
confessional churches. Um, and, you know, so I say that w- when we take up some of those issues, we don't want to take them up simply to say, oh, look at how sinful the church was, therefore we should just walk away. Uh, but rather we should recognize, hey, we have to look into the mirror of history so that we can see our faults and ensure that we never repeat them again. You know, it's like the, the, the philosopher George Santayana from the 19th century said that those who do not learn from history are doomed to repeat it. And so we have to do that. We have to, to, to come to grips. We have to grapple with our past so that we can ensure that we use confessions and creeds in a, in a right manner uh, rather than as a dividing line that ends up leading to violence or to bloodshed. And so uh, that's that's those are some of the truths that I uh, ideas that I unpack in that in that chapter. Sounds kind of like a classic case of throwing the baby out with the bathwater. Mm. You know, hey, look at all the damaging consequences that came about because of confessionalism. And yeah, really, it's it's people are the problem. It's not the principles necessarily yeah. that are put forward in the confessions, but people are less than perfect, aren't they? Yeah, I mean, and to borrow a line from Carl Truman, but I'll, I'll tweak it a little bit, creeds don't kill people, people kill people. Uh, so in other words, it's, it's a misuse of the documents that they profess to uphold. And so while people have pointed the finger at, aha, see, what this is what confessionalism gets you, I would say, no, this is what a misuse of confessionalism gets you. Uh, just like a, you know, a frying pan is a great thing unless you pick it up and try to hold it close to your chest as you pull it off the stove. Uh, well, you know, don't blame the frying pan for it. You blame the fool who picked up a hot frying pan and try to bear hug it. So, you know, and I don't know why that imagery comes to mind, but that's just, you know, that's just what comes it's to mind. <laughs> you know, it's, it's singed into my mind now. And there you go. To your point, how do we, so you're Orthodox Presbyterian, we're PCA, uh, we belong to May Park, North American Reformed and Presbyterian churches. How do we maintain confessional standards and not wield them like a frying pan? Mm-hmm. So how, how would you say creeds and confessions can be helpful today, or how can we use them helpfully as opposed to the destructive hugging them to your chest kind of way? Yeah, I think that if we pay attention to what the documents themselves say, we can say that the very best creeds and confessions will always drive us back to the scriptures. And if we take a look at what, say, the Westminster Confession says in chapter one that, you know, that, or I'm sorry, in the chapter on on, uh, on uh, synods and councils, that, that they can and do err, and that the supreme authority uh, in the doctrine and life of the church, as it says in chapter one, I think paragraph 10, is, is, this, is the Holy Spirit speaking in scripture. And then we see what it says in chapter two about the doctrine of God and who God is, that, uh, you know, he's immutable, that he's holy, that he's righteous, that he's all of these wonderful things. And then conversely, who we are as fallen sinners, hopefully the, the confession will uh, impart to us the, the, the teachings of Scripture that convince us and show us how, how we need to be humble, that we need to fear the Lord, uh, that we need to rely upon His power and the power of the gospel and not the power of the sword, and so that we would hold on to these documents firmly, uh, but do so humbly uh, and charitably, understanding that sometimes um, 
you know, we're going to have to say to, to, to certain people, to certain groups, I'm sorry, we, we can't go along with you. Uh, you know, our, our doctrinal convictions, our creeds are such that, you know, we can't, we can't deny the deity of Christ. I'm sorry. Uh, but that doesn't mean that we do so arrogantly. That doesn't mean that we do so violently. Uh, that doesn't mean that we do so, um, you know, um, harshly. They'll probably still accuse us of all of those things anyway. But uh, that that doesn't mean that we can't, you know, we can't do those things nevertheless. And so that's one of the things that I, that I think is great that we may have our different denominations, but, you know, we can say that, you know, like the, I say that the PCA and the OPC is like me and my, my younger brother. Uh, we're both from the same family. We sh- share a lot of the same DNA. We look alike, but he's younger, uh, probably better looking than I am. Uh, he's, uh, you know, he's hipper. He dresses cooler. Uh, he's fun, more fun to be with. I'm older, grouchier. Uh, and, uh, you know, I dress more conservatively. But at the end of the day, we're both from the same family. So that's, you know, the OPC and the PCA, hey, same family, so we can get along, even if we have, you know, some slight differences here and there. Um, and uh, so and as well as we can, you know, cooperate and work together in organizations like NAPARC, where we can recognize that we have a great affinity and doctrinal agreement with many other, you know, denominations that share similar convictions about the Reformed faith. It's a Reformed and Presbyterian you know, family and like an older brother, you know, sometimes uh, a good noogie is in order. Uh, <laughs> so uh, resources come to the resource time. So your book, uh, you know, it it's the creed on the creeds. Uh, somebody asked us, hey, why are you creedal? I'm going to recommend your book. Do you have any other books that you would uh, tell a Christian to have ready in the clip if they're going to look into these matters more deeply? Yeah, I think the first one is just a basic set. You can probably get it uh, at uh, online. I know you can find copies of it online, but it's it's uh, Philip Schaff's um, Creeds of Christendom, and uh, he has you know essentially three volumes where he rehearses the various creeds uh, and confessions of faith. Uh, the, the, you know, some of his introductory comments. Uh, are not necessarily always as helpful, um, but, you know, those are just some, you know, that will get you into the the orbit of the primary sources, in other words, so that you can read the various creeds and confessions. You can read the Nicene Creed, the Chalcedonian Definition, you know, the, uh, the, uh, the, the, you know, the Westminster Confession, the Heidelberg Catechism, and what have you. So that, that's a really uh, good one. A second one, is written by uh, Yaroslav Pelikan, who was a church historian at Yale University. And he wrote a book entitled Credo, Historical and Theological Guide to uh, Creeds and Confessions of Faith in the Christian Tradition. It's one of the most thorough treatments, I think, and it's it's definitely a, a replacement volume, if you will, for, for Schaff's work. He also has three volumes of creeds and confessions that go along with it. It's just that... Uh, those three volumes are not cheap, so that's why the the the, the Schaff edition is is easier to get to because it's it's free online. Uh, but the Credo book itself, I'm looking here at Amazon, and you can get used copies for as low as uh, less than uh, nine bucks. And then my wife is always fond to remind me plus shipping, and I'm like, no, shipping doesn't count in the price of a book. 
and that way I can say it was a really good price. Um, a third book is uh, Carl Truman's book, The Creedal Imperative. That's another brief little book that's of a similar length in mind, but he gives, I think, a good high altitude view as to, you know, regarding the importance of uh, creeds and confessions. Um, and then um, another book that I think is a good one is uh, my, my former colleague, Scott Clark. He wrote a book in, entitled Recovering the Reformed Confession, where he talks about, you know, the importance of, of confessionalism in the Reformed Church and the need for even Reformed churches to kind of remember their heritage and remember the principles of confessionalism. So I'd say that those those books, I think, on the whole, are probably definitely places to start. Uh, you might want to start with, um, you know, Truman. You could maybe then work your way to Clark and then look into the primary sources with either Schaff or Pelican. Good shout out to the Heidel dog there. Uh, yeah, there you go. <laughs> colleague. Uh, well, thank you so much. This has been we're through the shorter catechism and this is going to be one of our bonus episodes, but I think it's just helpful to remind people throughout the process as we're going through this, you know, yes, we're looking at individual questions in the shorter catechism, but getting a sense of trees. Why are we doing this? Why is this worthwhile? And is it at all helpful uh, in today? And I think you've given us plenty to think about and appreciate you coming back on. Hey, uh, thanks for having me and God willing, I look forward to getting together with you again in the future. Thank you very much. And, Yes, uh, with that, me and my, as Dr. Fesco said, my sharply dressed, you know, hip co-host, Tommy Park, we, we bid you adieu. Until we talk next, keep it short. Glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit of God. As it was in the beginning, is now.